We'll hear argument next in number 93609, Morgan Stanley and Company versus Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company. Mr. Bankard, is that the correct pronunciation of your name? It is, Mr. Chief Justice. Please proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, may it uh, please the Court. Petitioners contend that Section 27A of the Securities and Exchange Act violates the Constitution of the United States insofar as Section 27A permits the reopening of final judgments granted to private parties in actions that are entirely closed. The issues before this Court or whether the statute constitutes an impermissible infringement upon the principle of the separation of powers and upon the powers of the judiciary and upon the individual rights of those litigants who appear before the courts. The courts of appeals for the Sixth and the Tenth Circuit, as well as seven district courts who have been faced with this issue, have recognized that these, this statute is in irreconcilable conflict with rules of law handed down by venerable and respected precedents of this court. Consequently, they have held that the statute violates the Constitution. The Fifth Circuit, from whose order we appeal, reached a contrary conclusion, in large part on the basis of their holding that it was quite permissible for Congress to compel the courts to share part of their judicial judicial power with the Congress. We submit that that holding is unprecedented, it is wrong, and it should be reversed. Now, as I have said, our challenge is based upon two related grounds. The first is the separation of powers principle as set forth in Article 3 and as early and authoritatively uh, in interpreted and implemented by this court in Habern's case. There is no question but that Section 27A constitutes such an intrusion or an interference. Secondly, there is the point uh, of the rights of the individuals, which we, we, we contend that the judgment of the district court, uh, in essence terminating federal securities claims against the petitioners, uh, constitutes a divestment of our due process rights. There is no issue that Section 27A was passed in direct reaction to this court's decision in beam and lamp. Indeed, the respondent set forth at some length the uh, legislative reaction. Some might say it was overblown, but in any event, there was no discussion that we can find, and the respondents, I don't believe, have cited any, of the constitutional problems which bring us here today. We do know that a statute was passed which overruled beam, in essence, or at least a part of the statute that we are here today on. Why did it overrule it? It simply provided a different statute of limitations, and what Congress does is enact statutes, including those involving limitations. But they can't reverse, undo final judgments. Justice well, they, they didn't, you, you agree, I take it, they didn't do uh, uh, what, uh, what would have been done by the Congress in Habern's case. What they, this, what, this was not an instance, what I'm getting at is this is not an instance in which there was an individualized action by Congress on a case-by-case -case basis That's correct. to revise an ost otherwise ostensibly final decision of a court. That is correct, Your Honor. So Habern is no authority for you, is it? 
It, it is, Your Honor, in that Habern's case treats the broader principle of the powers of the judiciary being infringed by Congress, whether or not the statute pre-exists or comes after the judgment at issue. There are scores, of, there are a lot of cases which have interpreted Habern's case in that way, that where they state that the Congress has no power, as we understand it, to revise final judgments of this court. Whether or not that statute... But those are final judgments which, as judgments, are being revised. And in this case, a general law is being changed. That is correct, Your Honor. A, a, and and you, have the, I mean, do you, you have no authority from this court with respect to that latter proposition, do you? Your Honor, we have, we, we have the authority in Gordon and in O'Grady, if you will, Your Honor, which we believe hold that when any law is passed by Congress, whether it be new or old, it cannot... It cannot infringe upon a final judgment which has been rendered by this court. Mr. Benko, why do you concede that no, no judgment has been revised by the statute? The statute washes out? Oh, Your Honor, I, forgive me. I did not mean to I make... I thought you did. I thought... Oh, no, 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 no. This, this statute did not revise any judgment. It certainly did. It oh, no, wiped out judgments that were on the books, did the, it? The devil has my lips, Your Honor. I, no, I, I think I, what... I, no, I... I, 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 I think... I, I think the devil is... I don't think it's your lips the devil has got here. I... I think your concession to me was that Congress had not, on a particularized case-by-case -case basis, that is revised them. But they have revised these judgments, as Justice Scalia has pointed out. But, but in, in Habern's case, it was clear at the time that the court was asked to resolve the dispute that the judgment would and could be revised by the Congress. There was almost a question of finality there. Here, the dispute was final as of the time the court heard it. Uh, for all that it thought, for all that it knew. <laughs> well, the dispute, uh, dispute in, in this case, Your Honor, or in Habern's? In, your, in our case. The case was, was, in essence, over before Section 27A was enacted. And so the court could give its determination without fear of Congress revising it on the basis that the court decided it. That is correct. And that is the difference between this case and Habern's. That is, there's no question, Your Honor, and this is an argument that Respondent Pacific Mutual makes, that somehow it makes a difference that a statute comes afterwards and strips a final judgment from a party as opposed to coming before. With all due respect, Your Honor, we say the interference is worse when it comes in the latter situation, at least in the, in the, the previous one, the parties have some chance, they have some knowledge it's coming. When the statute comes afterwards, it, it has divested the power of the judiciary even, even more so. Mr. Banker, you're talking about the timing of the legislation. I would like you to consider the substance of the legislation. That is, in Hayburn's case, is it not true that effectively the legislature was setting itself up as an appellate tribunal, uh, revising, modifying, whatever initial decision the judiciary made? So the judiciary was being considered as sort of a first instance mm -hmm. tribunal, and then came the legislature or the executive, I forgot which, but anyway, the, well, the other branches putting themselves over the judiciary on the question of the substantive rights of the claimant. Correct. There was and, a potential and, for that, Your Honor. Here it's an actuality. But the actuality is what? This case involves a statute of limitations. Correct. Is it not so that as between the judiciary and the legislature, Statutes of limitations are in the legislature's court. When the 
legislature doesn't act, then the court has to make something up and feels intensely uncomfortable doing so because statutes of limitations are, by their nature, arbitrary. Correct. Uh, Your Honor, of course, you had to set the statute of limitations here, and Congress didn't like the way you did it and changed, and changed the law. But the fact of the matter is, we're not saying that we have a vested right, if you will, getting to an, another, uh, the later issue, in the statute of limitations. We're saying we have a vested right, or whatever the right is that deserves the protection of the Constitution, to the judgment which was but that's answered. a due process argument. That's a, that's a different issue. Yeah. But it may be, Your Honor, but... The powers argument for the moment, if, if you would. I certainly will. I, I mean, uh, you, you understand, I don't look on these two as Scylla and Charybdis. I look on them as fortifying doctrines. There's no question that the separation of powers appears first in our brief, if you will, uh, because I can see getting into the whole vested rights briar patch. But I do not think that has to be done here. The fact of the matter is it isn't so much the statute itself that we say is ours and ours forever. It is the judgment entered on the basis of that statute that deserves the respect of the Congress. And there's absolutely no question. It's on its face. Well, how about about Rule 60, which which authorizes the setting aside of judgments within certain time periods? That is purely a congressional action. But it's for you to do, Your Honor. It's not for the Congress. The Congress has no power to come in as they have here. And I really want to get back to your question, Justice Ginsburg. It's not just the... Congress can't say, well, we have decided under 60B that the darn good showing has been made by the, uh, by the appellants and therefore we're going to reopen the judgment. 60B is within the province of the judiciary to decide on a variety of reasons. Equity, well, here, here, here Congress has simply provided that the judiciary shall judge whether or not a new statute of limitations applies and then decide the case on the merits. If I may segue, then, they have, in fact, operated, as I believe you pointed out in your dissent in Sioux Nation, they have operated as an appellate court. They have told you, they have told the courts of the United States, well, we're now going to decide that this case should be remanded that it should be dealt with. That's what this court does often. You you recognize the distinction, and I think you were quite candid to do so, between deciding the merits of a case as the claimant, uh, is the claimant entitled to a pension or benefit of some kind, Mm -hmm. and a question of time, where we agree that time is for the legislature. Statutes of limitations have legislative decision written all over them. So it's a question of this um, retroactivity. And I'm wondering, um, is there any problem about separation of powers or due process with a revival statute? A statute that revives a claim that dies with a student and then it's revived. I do not think it is the same kind of claim, Your Honor. Unless it is, in essence, blessed by a judgment, I can see a distinction. Oh, oh well, that, that, that's it. Uh, but isn't that the distinction? Absolutely, uh, Your Honor. If, if Justice uh, uh, Ginsburg is talking about a claim that has expired without a lawsuit having been brought. Correct. It can be. We know that from right. Chase versus Donaldson. We know it from a variety. And you would distinguish that from a case where the statute having expired, a suit is brought and dismissed on the basis of the statute. That's Absolutely. a different situation. Yes, and, so, and Chase versus Donaldson so made that distinction, as have many of the, of the courts below. Well, it's just the holiness of the judgment that you're relying on. That that's, judgment. Absolutely. Can't. That's what the courts are all about. We are here in this building to serve you, to serve the principles of finality. If Congress can come in here when they don't like a result and say, all we're doing is remanding it back to have another look at it, and if we have some kind of a sharing of judicial authority, you get two things. First, you get an 
you, you get an erosion of the autonomy, it seems to me, of this court and the courts, uh, the other courts as well. Not only that, you get institutional disharmony. Here you have the courts of the United States doing the best they can to come down with decisions. People spend time, money, whatever, to come and get those decisions, and you render final relief. Well, we've told Congress the stat that, in effect, that its statute is broken, and so Congress fixed it. Fine. They can fix it for pending cases, and that's the 27A. It seems to me they can do that without interfering with the courts. We have said that our considered judgment under this statute is that the statute of limitations is A, B, C, D. Mm-hmm. You, and, you, and no one quarrels with that. That is final. Uh, it the is point final is that Congress can alter that without demeaning or interfering with this court. It and can. it should do so if it desires a different result. And that simply brings us to the next question, which is the due process question. Yeah. But so far as the separation of powers question, I, I see no interference. Well, I, I, with the greatest respect, I see all the interference in the world. Uh, we see a bright line here between a situation where there is a judgment entered on whatever the old law is. The moving hand has writ under those circumstances. And if Congress can come back and tell you, no, you got the statute of limitations wrong, not only will it be different for future cases, but for past cases as well, why can't they do it for contributory negligence? Why can't they change the burden of proof? Why can't they change the rules of evidence? Mr. Bankard, I, I assume that for purposes of this case, uh, you, you, would, uh, you can concede that it would be a different matter if Congress simply passed a longer statute of limitations, which would allow people who, even people who had already sued and been denied because of the old statute of limitations to bring a new suit, uh, raising a res judicata issue, but that's a different issue. Mm. What? Mm. Do, you, do you have to wait, assert no, that? Wait, wait, no, no, Must no. you assert that it's the same one for the purpose of this case? I'm not sure I have to. I think I have my lips back, but I do not think that that is a necessary concession for me to make. What I believe Your Honor is saying is, why couldn't Congress have just passed a new statute and given, given a new remedy to the people whose judgments had already I been I think ended? that's a harder question Much. than, 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 than Congress uh, setting aside a judgment of the court, which is, wh- which is what happened here. It set aside the judgment. It Absolutely. The case will be reopened. I say it can't do it. You don't think that's a harder question than... I do think it's a harder question. I don't think it's any... We have also treated it at some length in our, in our brief because it was raised by the other side. Uh, I, there are a variety of responses to it, uh, one of which comes out of uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion in the Ninth Circuit in Chanda, where he said that one, just because you can do the greater doesn't mean you can do the lesser. But there are a variety of other questions, namely um, the race judicata one. And I also would argue at the end, I, I'm glad I don't have to hear, but I, I, I have a feeling that after the Denver decision on the aiding and abetting point, that in fact there may be a little deja vu here, um, which I think uh, Justice Stevens uh, noted in his dissent. Um, but when that, when that issue comes, uh, I hope Congress is somewhat the wiser from what has happened here. Uh, I wonder if I might spend a moment on Sioux Nation. There's one point on the due process uh, side that I'd like you to address. Here you're talking about the right of the individual to the benefit of that judgment. If the case is still in the hopper, because the litigants have sprung it out, or because the plaintiff, having been dismissed, takes an appeal, the plaintiff knows the plaintiff's going to lose, but has kept the case alive. Those people have no due process right, I take it. When you say those people have no... People who deliberately prolonged, protracted litigation, instead of accepting 
the dismissal. Isn't what happened here plaintiffs who came in with the expectation that the claim was timely? Uh, well, then had that dis- expectation disappointed by this court's decision in Lamp, mm-hmm. Congress responded to that disappointment and provided for two things. Cases still in the pipeline? Uh, I understand. Uh, Your Honor, I, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I have filed a certain amount of appeals in my time that certain people have said to me, gosh, they're not really valid or whatever. Litigation is never over until a certain person sings. So then and, we're uh, dealing with the people who were unsophisticated rather than the people who protracted. Well, it's if unsoph- people who were unsophisticated, those plaintiffs who didn't take that protective appeal or uh, cautious appeal to characterize it in a mm-hmm. non-pejorative way. Those people, the sophisticated, uh, will, those plaintiffs will succeed, whereas the ones who just accepted the dismissal lose. Uh, I don't want to fence with you, Your Honor, but a lot of sophisticated and unsophisticated people took appeals here. Uh, during the pendency of the discussions in Congress concerning 27A. And they are in a different situation. But if you push me to it, and I'm happy to, to accept that, the fact of the matter is at some point you have to draw a, a bright line. And indeed, if one looks at two paragraphs in the McCullough opinion, which to my knowledge are still the law of this land, once that final judgment is reached, this court can't look behind it and say, well, it wasn't a really good final judgment. It was based on a statute of limitations. You, you should have filed an appeal. You shouldn't filed, uh, have filed an appeal. Under those circumstances, it is done. And it, uh, but the court, uh, courts can do that, as you conceded all the time, under 60B6. Courts can and do it. For reasons are just and equitable. They can reopen a final, final judgment, right? Under those circumstances, it, it would have been within Pacific Mutual's rights I'm not saying we would agree to it, for them to have gone the 60B route after the statute came in. They decided not to do that. They challenged the Constitution. I'm sorry, they, they, they challenged uh, uh, our, our action, and, uh, and here we are. But they were supposed to go to the courts under 60B. The Congress does not have that authority. Can you imagine if the Congress had the authority that is given to the courts under 60B? Think what the lobbyists would do with it. I mean, it, and, and you know what we would do with it, <laughs> uh, because there would be an individualized revision of judgments based on the particular application of law to the facts of that case. By the branch of the government that rendered the judgment, Your Honor, not by another one, not by the Congress. But in the case that you were posing, Congress was doing what we were doing under 60B. Oh, I don't believe so at all, Your Honor. But I misunderstood no, no. what you No, no, no. No, I'm saying that if you give 60B power to the Congress, you, you have turmoil. They weren't doing This wasn't a 60B. A 60B application isn't supposed to go to the Congress of the United States. It goes to the court. But the same argument could have been made before Rule 60B was ever enacted, that you'll have turmoil if you allow any setting aside of judgment. I, I would suggest to you, Your Honor, both the separation of powers, principles, and due process. It is one thing to allow the branch of the government that entered the judgment to exercise the discretion and to determine whether or not that relief should be granted. It is an entirely different thing to have the Congress come in and do it without, uh, you know, Mr. Justice Souter, you you said that you did the same thing as the Congress. You don't do it at all. You have different rules of law. You have different standards than the Congress. Right, but in, in, excuse me, Um, 60B wasn't brand new anyway. It, it, It was an embodiment of what courts had been had been doing traditionally anyway, with some further specification of the grounds for it. 
But courts had traditionally asserted the power to uh, to uh, remove their own judgments for certain reasons, had they not? That's my understanding, Your Honor. And so it, it came within the judicial power under, under traditional understanding. And conversely, you don't claim that what's happening here is what would happen if Congress exercised a 60B power. I really don't know what happens with well, Congress when, exercising when a, 60B. I really hope it never does. When a, when a court exercises a 60B power, it is looking to the individualized facts of the case and applying Correct. a rule of law or, or opening a judgment so that a, a rule of law can at least potentially be applied differently. But isn't that something that the courts should do rather than the Congress? I, I, I quite agree, but that is not what the Congress is doing in this case. I agree. That's why it should be shot down. The um, Sioux Nation? Sioux Nation. Good. The... the <laughs> You're gracious indeed, Your Honor. The, the, point, the point about Sioux Nation is this, that in the, it is, I think it's fair to say, the linchpin of, the, uh, of my opponent's argument that indeed one can have sharing, that it's okay to, to have a little give and take, uh, and it's the flexibility doctrine and all the rest of it. And indeed the argument is made that in this court, excuse me, in the Sioux Nation case, this court affirmatively rejected a separation of powers uh, argument. Indeed, the Fifth Circuit opinion I'm reading now from, well, it's A32 of our petition for a writ, but it's from the second to last page of the opinion. The Fifth Circuit stated in Sioux Nation, the government appealed, asserting that the statute which took away the race judicata defense, the government appealed asserting that this statute violates the constitutional separation of legislative and judicial authority. Therefore, the Fifth Circuit says this, this question was explicitly raised and fought for by the government in Sioux Nation. Let's go to the record. In the transcript of the oral argument of Sioux Nation, a member of this court turned at the very end of the Solicitor General's argument and said, doesn't the separation of powers, doesn't that bother you at all? You don't make the argument. Is that conceivably a violation of the separation of powers doctrine? Answer, I would have thought not, Mr. Justice Blackman. I hesitated to answer the Chief Justice's question uh, on another subject. I think Congress is entitled to say you may have another opportunity to litigate your lawsuit. As a result, the majority opinion in this court stated that because the government had waived this very point, neither of the two separation of powers objections is presented by this legislation and therefore to this court. Nothing of the sort happened in Sioux Nation. It is not an authority for my adversaries. Indeed, in the majority opinion in Sioux Nation, specific reference, and we believe approving reference, is made to Habern's case as stating the general rule, and indeed, in, mis in the uh, Chief Justice's dissent, I think he certainly reached the same conclusion. Mr. Bankert, why doesn't, it, doesn't the judiciary violate the separation of powers when it denies Congress full control over the timeliness of a statutory claim? The claim is a creation of the legislature. The timeliness of the claim is a legislative judgment. Hasn't the court, in effect, taken, encroached on the legislative turf by taking what should be an entirely legislative judgment, what is the claim, and how long you have to bring it. The judiciary has cut off the legislature's right to determine how long you have 
to maintain a statutory claim. Why doesn't that violate the separation of powers? Why isn't that the judiciary? I know this isn't overstepping. May I ask you a question? I mean, on what grounds would the uh, court be uh, fiddling with this, the, uh, the statutory length of the claim? I, I don't know what the grounds would the be. The grounds would be those set forth in my descent in Lamp. <laughs> Where I accuse the court of doing just that. Exactly. And it, it occurs to me that you're in precisely the position you would have been had my dissent prevailed in Lamp, aren't you? I think that's probably yeah. correct. I haven't, I haven't really traced it through. Um, anyway, Your Honor, could, if I could reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you very much. Very well, Mr. Bankard. Uh, Mr. Toronto, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. It's well established that Congress has broad legislative power to enact new laws to reach past events, specifically including a new statute of limitations to allow plaintiffs who are out of time under old law an opportunity to recover from defendants charged with wrongful conduct. Here, securities fraud. The question in this case is whether those defendants who have obtained a final judgment under the old rule have acquired a constitutional immunity from application of the new rule to them. Our position is that there is no separation of powers or due process problem with equal treatment of those defendants along with those who happen to have cases still pending. The question is even narrower than that, Mr. Toronto. They, uh, they, they may not have a constitutional... It is possible that they do not have a constitutional right not to have the new rule applied to them, but they may have a constitutional right not to have it applied to them via the dissolution of judgments that they have received. That is possible, but I can't frankly think of a single case in which this court has made a decision, in particular in separation of powers, turn on what is in essence a non-constitutional formality. And if I look back, if we look back at Robertson against Seattle Audubon Society, the court specifically said, we look at the substance of what Congress did. And here, the substance is identical to a statute that says, the following class of plaintiffs shall have a new 10b-5 prime cause of action. Many things may be done in one way and not done in another. A state law that, that simply expropriates $2 million from every tobacco company is invalid. A state law that taxes every tobacco company in the amount of $2 million is valid. A, a, a judicial decision that ignores a federal statute on the ground that it's unconstitutional and applies the rest of the law without that statute is valid. A judicial decision that directs the marshal to go across the street and rip that statute off of the, uh, off of the books of, of uh, the statute books of the United States is invalid. But I think Justice there, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. Well, in, in Robertson, the, the, the legislation was written, it seems to me, in a way that is much more troublesome under separation of powers doctrine than this. The legislation said the following statutory requirements shall be deemed satisfied by meeting certain conditions. The fundamental distinction between legislation and adjudication, I think as this court said in Robertson, as your own concurrence, I think in Freitag reflects, as the court said in the procedural due process portion of concrete pipe, is the difference between making law and on the other hand, interpreting and applying law to particular facts and finding facts. And the fundamental point, I think, about this statute is that it is legislative equally whether Congress applied it to pending cases or to final cases. The reason that this, that, that there is no challenge in this case to, or, in, or in, in any event is now conceded as seven circuits have held, that Section 27A is fully legislative as applied to pending cases is that the relevant constitutional line 
has to do with the difference between adjudication and legislation. And that line is no more crossed when Congress acts with respect to pending or final cases. Indeed, our submission is that if Congress, to take Justice, Stewart, Justice uh, Souter's example, undertook to consider the particular facts of a particular case and to apply the law itself to that case, that would be equally unconstitutional in a pending case as it would in a final case. In Congress, uh, which is dissatisfied with the, with the outcome of a particular case uh, uh, or a particular class of cases, simply say that those cases shall be retried? Um, I think that that is, is, it can in certain circumstances. That, I think, Why in certain circumstances? Because, because I think one follows the Sioux Nation analysis. Sioux Nation necessarily rests on two propositions. The first is that a change of law to reopen judgments by itself is not the exercise of judicial power. The second proposition, and this is what the entire waiver discussion in Sioux Nation concerns, is to identify the source of Congress's particular power to change particular law. In Sioux Nation, the particular law changed was exactly race judicata law. And this court said race judicata law may be changed by Congress when it is essentially waiving its own right not to pay money. This case involves a change of law obviously within Congress's power under the Commerce Clause to set a limitations period for 10B, 10b-5. But the finality principle, namely the idea that a change of law to reopen a judgment does not exercise judicial power, I think stands entirely independently. I read Sioux Nation much more narrowly than that. Its summation of its holding is, in sum, Congress's mere waiver of the res judicata effect of a prior judicial decision rejecting the validity of a legal claim against the United States does not violate the doctrine of separation of powers. That's its summation. Here, here yes. Congress is legislating not for, its, not for the United States, but for private individuals. Yes, I, 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 that, that's, that's exactly right. But I, I don't think that the separation of powers point that the reopening of a judgment by a change of law is not the exercise of judicial power is dependent on the fact that the United States was a party there any more than Pope against the United States or Cherokee Nation or the various cases in which this court upheld against these kinds of challenges legislation reopening territorial court judgments where there were private defendants. I think the private defendant has to do with two things. One, the due process issue, and two, the source of the particular legislative power to change race judicata law. There may well be limits on Congress's power with respect to private cases simply to say, do it again. In, when the United States, when money claims against the United States are involved, I think that's not problematical. If, for example, there were a legislative determination that a whole raft of cases were decided under now clearly incorrect science and they should be, and they, in essence, weren't fairly tried, I think that might be within the power. But here we don't have a question of the legislative power to change the Logic may be correct, Mr. Toronto, but, but insofar as we are bound by stare decisis, uh, all the two nation holds is that that can happen when the United States is waiving its own its own right to raise judicata. Yes, I, I, I utterly agree that there is no holding of this court directly applicable to this case. I think the entire line, for example, of the Habern's case uh, cases have to do with advisory opinions and are irrelevant here. The closest I think this court has come are the two lines of cases, Sioux Nation and its predecessors, Pope and Cherokee, and the territorial court cases. And I agree that the holdings of those cases do not answer this question, but I do think that the principles of those cases do. How about Klein? 
Well, I think Klein, I think, has quite wisely not been argued in, in this court, precisely because, as this court made clear in Robertson against Seattle Audubon Society, um, this is a case in which Congress changed the law applicable to a class of cases and did not simply direct the courts to enter a, a, uh, a particular decision by making an adjudicatory decision. Now, on if that's the criterion, then I suppose you would say that uh, the only thing they can't do is decide the case, uh, in, in, in your view. Could, could they say? No, I don't think so. I think, I think that, there, that there are um, elements of adjudication. What? what I principally do, I think, finding facts that are elements of a cause of action and interpreting or applying rather than changing the law. All I right. Think what, could, what, what about changing the law to a whole class of cases that have been already decided uh, in which plaintiffs have won and saying we are now changing the law uh, to provide for an affirmative defense of, uh, let's say, uh, an affirmative defense of, of good faith or of qualified immunity. And all those plaintiffs uh, can be hauled back, the judgments will be dissolved, the cases will be retried with this new defense. Can, can Congress do that? I think as a matter of substance of due process and as a matter of separation of powers, yes, I think Congress could do that. Done that more often if that's been so available. I know so many cases, so many instances when they would have liked to have things come out differently, and they just never thought they could do that. Uh, it's nice to know. Well, well I think... No, please, when you're done, I have a question. I, 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 it seems to me that, that the long-standing presumption against retroactive legislation, including, I think, this kind, reflects deep-seated fairness concerns that is what, over the years, in fact, inhibits Congress or other legislatures from doing this sort of thing. Um, on any kind of uh, uh, in any in any way that would have generated this precise case in this court before, um, so it's not in fact to be expected that Congress would do this on on any number of occasions. You you just touched on on something which which I was thinking about, uh, and I, I wonder if you will elaborate on it. Um, you you in effect I, I think just said there is a point at which the separation argument and the due process argument come together. And, and if I understood what you were saying, you were saying the, the, the reason that the judgment as such uh, does not somehow affect the outcome of the argument, uh, the, the reason that the, that the judgment is not sort of the touchstone of what is or is not the, uh, the, the, the appropriate separation of powers uh, uh, analysis, uh, is that in effect, the judgment, uh, I think you're implying, the judgment uh, is, is simply a property right at that point. And because not every interference with a property right is a due process violation, uh, the mere fact that the judgment giving rise to the property right is there uh, should not, for separation purposes, be regarded as dispositive any more than the existence of a property right as such should be regarded as dispositive for due process. Is, is that in a well, sort of way what you're saying? Well, let, me, let me see if I can respond this way. I think for separation of powers purposes, there's no talismanic significance to a judgment because the underlying principles that um, separate Article I from Article Three really don't make the magic moment of a judgment relevant to the question of whether somebody's been um, denied a politically independent but, but you, adjudicator. But, but why is that so? Why is that so? Why shouldn't it be a magic moment? Well, I think in part because it produces um, uh, what to my mind are arbitrary and indeed uh, upside-down results. Arbitrary by, because? Is, is because, it, because they, the distinction between Congress acting with respect to a pending case and Congress acting with respect to a case that has finally come to an end 
doesn't, as far as I can tell, either reflect anything in the text, unlike the, the formal lines relied on in Chadha and Bauscher and, and, and that line of cases, or the underlying constitutional principle. There are political judgments to be made in saying what the limitations period is. There are in the politically independent fact-finding and law-interpreting functions to be performed by the courts, which is what Article Three guarantees. And I don't see that whether a particular matter is pending or has come to an end has any anything to do with those. Well, one of your brother's answers is the line has got to be drawn somewhere. I think that the line has to be drawn by looking at whether what Congress has done is to make a adjudicatory decision, whether it acts too narrowly, whether it explicitly changes the law, whether it makes very case-specific kind of fact findings. Here, I don't think we're even near that boundary, and that's why there's no dispute any longer about the validity of 27A as the pending cases. Now, on the due process side, it seems to me important to keep in mind the two different roles judgments can play. A judgment can create a new right, a right in a judgment, like a judgment lien, but I don't understand that there's been any argument that that kind of property right should somehow be treated as more sacrosanct than the right of title to property or contract right. The other kind of right is what's talked about in all the cases concerning rights vested by a judgment. And the judgment there simply plays the role of confirming the legal entitlement. And it seems to me, again, upside down to say that if the legal entitlement was so clear and indisputable that it never gave rise to litigation in the first place, that is subject only to due process rationality. Whereas if it was sufficiently disputable and ambiguous that litigation resulted, that somehow the result, again, the underlying right is the property right, is protected as sacrosanct when a, when a judgment has finally said, well, on balance, the right view of the existing legal entitlements is that you indeed have them. That seems to me to be exactly backwards in terms of a role of a judgment. And here, the judgment itself is being, um, is being raised to a level by, view, by, by reference to all the vested rights cases that indeed other vested rights, like contract rights and property rights, are, are, have been held specifically by this court to be subject to the rationality test. And of course, this case doesn't involve other specific constitutional provisions like the takings clause or the contract clause where vested rights of a specific sort may have additional legal protection. If the court has no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Toronto. Uh, Mr. Dreven, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The separation of powers principles that apply to this case really are two. The first is, of course, that Congress cannot itself exercise judicial power that is given to the Article III courts. The second principle, which is the, the Habern's case principle, is that Congress cannot require the federal courts to engage in a form of advisory opinion rendering by rendering non-binding determinations that some other branch of government, either the executive branch or Congress, then reviews. It's Is there also some principle that the Congress cannot make it um, extraordinarily difficult for this branch to perform its functions? I can't phrase it with any more precision than that. Yes, Justice Kennedy, I think there is a principle that, that Congress cannot, by a, by a variety of mechanisms that, that may not be easy to specify, weaken the judicial branch to the point where it, it cannot perform could Congress function at all. abolish, assuming it could draw a statute that could do it, abolish the doctrine of stare decisis? I would have difficulty understanding a rational basis for Congress to abolish stare decisis entirely 
and it might be difficult for such a doctrine to survive even due process review. As a matter of, of Article III jurisprudence, a, a total abolition of stare decisis might be one of those rare type of actions that would so weaken the judicial branch that you don't have uh, a functioning court system in the sense that the Constitution contemplates judicial power. But the point that I, I wanted to get to here is that the very specific action that, that Congress took in Section 27A, subsection B, of requiring the reinstatement of a very limited class of securities fraud cases doesn't violate any of the principles that we've been discussing. But I, but I take it one of the principles that uh, you and I were just discussing uh, with reference to about abolition of stare decisis is that the courts cannot uh, function effectively unless their judgments have a certain degree of A, finality, and B, respect. I agree with both of those propositions, but I think... And that's a separation is, of powers, kind of. I, I think that it, it is at the margins, but I think that the key is, is a certain degree of finality. This statute does not rob uh, judicial decisions en masse of finality. What it does is says that as to a particular class of cases where Congress concededly has the power to change the law, Congress exercises the power to change the law. And then rather than requiring plaintiffs to refile wholly new cases based on new statutory causes of action, which it also clearly has the power to create, Congress adopted a much more precise procedural mechanism for getting the claim back into court. To it, dissolved existing judgments. Why is not dissolving an existing judgment a judicial act? You, you, you gave two things that would violate separate, separation powers, and the first one was the performance of a judicial act. Why? Except, I don't know what could be more uh, a judicial, it's very hard to, to, to define the judicial power, but if there's anything central to it, surely it is the entry or dissolution of a judgment. Well, I, I, this statute, of course, does not, in terms, to use, to use the formal terms of the statute, it does not dissolve a judgment. It is not a judicial decree that says the judgments in X case or X class of cases are dissolved. What it does is provide what is, in effect, Rule 60B7, that says that a plaintiff who has, the, uh, has had a final judgment entered against him, but has a change in statutory law that entitles the plaintiff's claim to succeed, whereas before it failed, may go back to court. And the court, upon motion of the plaintiff, shall reinstate the judgment. And if formality does matter in this sense, I think that this statute is fully consistent with the general trend of Rule 60B law, which Congress would clearly have the power to enact. 60B may not right now be generally interpreted to permit the reinstatement of cases based on changes in statutory law. But I see no reason whatsoever why Congress could not enact as a procedural housekeeping measure a 60B7 that I've described that would allow reinstatement of the case. And that's if you characterize it as a procedural avenue, namely the procedural avenue in re reinstatement. If you characterize it, on the other hand, as a substantive act, namely Congress wanted the, the plaintiffs in this case to enjoy the substantive right to be able to litigate their securities fraud cases on the merits after they had been thrown out of court by what Congress viewed was a surprise to them, at least, in the way that the law evolved. 
then the substance of what Congress did is to create a new cause of action, a new right to proceed in court. And the fact that it did so in a manner that required the reinstatement of a pending case rather than the filing of a wholly new complaint should not be deemed to... Why not? I just, as I just went over with Mr. Toronto, there's a right way and a wrong way to do a lot of things. And, and uh, the mere fact that you can achieve the same result in another fashion doesn't show that doing it in this fashion is all right. Well, what I, I suppose it follows from what, and this, this relates to Justice Kennedy's question, I suppose it follows from what you say, that when Congress disagrees with, it, with the decision of this court, it can, uh, you know, that the law is thus and so. It can change the law and require this court to retry the same case under the new law. Well, I think when it changes the law and requires a, a, a new trial of the case, it's not really a new trial. I mean, it is a, a, a new claim that's being pursued under the new law. And I don't see any impediment to that occurring whatsoever, either as a matter of article. You don't think that that tends to, uh, to demean the judiciary? No, not at all. I, the, the judiciary's function, particularly when you're dealing here in an area of statutory law, Rule 10b-5, which was created by the judiciary, it did not have an express statute of limitations. This court stepped in to supply what it viewed as, as post hoc legislative intent of what Congress would have done. Then Congress, which is clearly the proper body to provide a statute of limitations for a statutory cause of action, said what that limitations period will be. And it determined that the, the limitations period retroactively would be the limitations period that, that the plaintiffs and the defendants had assumed to be the law before this court's decision in Lamp. That is an exercise of lawmaking power, pure and simple. It, it is clearly legislative. The courts are left with tasks that are entirely judicial. A motion is made to the court under an existing statute, Section 27A, requesting reinstatement of the case. If the party has satisfied the requirements of the law, the case is reinstated, and the action then proceeds to trial on the merits, and ultimately the courts will render judgments that, that are reflective of the facts that are found in the cases and the application of law based on the securities laws. The courts are... Is one reason why this is a novel issue the relative newness of beam. I was trying to think whether there was a case involving a statute change in the court's uh, interpretation of what the legislature wanted in the way of a statute of limitations, where the court itself said applying the first Chevron case, Chevron against Houston, but we are not going to cut short the plaintiff's right retroactively. So this rule will allow plaintiffs to maintain their actions when everyone thought it was timely to stay in court, and our new rule of the limitation should be three, not four years, will not operate uh, retroactively. Was there any such decision? No, I'm not aware of any, Justice Ginsburg, and I, I think that your speculation that the interaction of LAMP and BEAM were, were the direct source of Section 27A is probably correct. Until this court had decided BEAM, it probably would have not applied a new statutory holding as to a statute of limitations that shortened the period retroactively to other cases. In the, the basis for BEAM was that that was the traditional mode of judicial... You're not really saying that prospective decision-making has been the tradition. No. I, on the contrary, what I am saying is that under this court's decision in Chevron versus Husson, the court had refrained from applying a new statute of limitations backwards within the system to throw out cases that pretty novel to, to, to say we're, we're announcing this only for future cases. 
I mean, it seems well, it's it, a novelty, not, not applying things. It had, it had been uh, the, the way that the court had operated for many years, and I think that it explains why there had been, particularly since Chevron versus Hessen had been decided, why there had been few, if any, opportunities for Congress really to consider the need to frame what is, in essence, a transition legislative rule between the old regime under which... Uh, uh, the, um, the LAMF holding was that the 1-3 rule would prevail to the new regime, which is that LAMF goes forward and displaces state law. So Congress, in effect, revived the state law statute limitations, which were the expectations of the parties. I'm wondering to what extent uh, your argument is bottomed entirely in the fact that this is a statute of limitations case. Would your reasoning apply equally if Congress should tonight enact a statute reviving the aiding and abetting cause of action under 10b-5 and do it in a similar fashion? Well, I think, Justice Stevens, as to separation of powers, the, the cases are indistinguishable. Uh, any time that Congress changes the law and determines that the law should be applied to cases that, that are technically final within the system, uh, that there would be no different issue as to a plaintiff side, defendant side. Whether there is a difference under any other doctrine in the Constitution, such as the Due Process Clause or the Takings Clause, raises a more difficult question. This court has previously rejected a vested rights due process argument that a plaintiff made um, in the Freeland versus Williams case, which was in the 19th century, where in that case the plaintiff had won a judgment, he had not executed it. Um, Virginia or West Virginia, I believe, changed the law so as to preclude him from executing the judgment, and this court upheld it finding no due process violation when the legislature chooses to change a law, even in such a way that it wipes out a plaintiff's right. And, of course, the Fleming versus Rhodes case more recently, which is the case that makes clear that whatever rights that are vested in a judgment are on a par with other economic rights, which Congress may retroactively regulate, provided that it has the rational basis for doing it, that case, I think, also establishes that plaintiffs in general are not protected by the due process clause. There may be a harder case, cases on the margins, uh, that would raise takings claims. This case, I think, clearly raises no specter of a taking whatsoever. There is no tradition or any source of law that the uh, petitioners can point to that says that a judgment that rests on a statute of limitations is somehow a species of property. Uh, the right not to litigate a claim on the merits is, is not regarded as the kind of property that, that the government would take. And in any event, it's not clear how the government acquired this right, even if it is one. And it's uh, certainly not a case where it would be unfair to require petitioners to assume the burden of litigating on the merits their securities fraud case and paying a judgment if, in fact, they, they committed securities fraud under what everybody acknowledges is pre-existing liability. Um, this is not something that the public should bear rather than petitioners. So I don't see this case as raising any takings problem either. Um, Congress does act circumspectly in changing the law with respect to cases that have gone final, because there is, of course, a well-settled distinction in the law between pending cases and final cases. But it is not of constitutional dimension for purposes of Article III. There are other settings in which what is, in essence, the doctrine of res judicata, the doctrine of repose, is overridden by a congressional determination that relitigation of a claim should go forward. Um, Section 2255 in the criminal area is an example of that. The Sioux Nation case is an example of that, where government debts are involved. And I think the same principle is equally applicable here. Raymond, uh, does the government have any case um, other, other than uh, Sioux Nation in, in which uh, Congress has done this set-aside and extant judgment? Well, the other cases that, that were the ones that Sioux Nation relied on 
which are also cases in which the government was um, government a party. Was party. So no case in, in which a private party was a party to the judgment. Has Congress ever tried to set it aside? Uh, I am not in sure that there is no case, but we rely. We don't rely. No, we don't rely on any precedent of this court that says that. I don't think, for separation of powers purposes, it should make a difference. In fact, if there should be any litigant whose ability to require the federal courts to relitigate issues should be most suspect, it would probably be the United States, because the United States would have the the greatest capacity to, in some way undermine the independence of the judiciary by treating its cases in some sort of a favored way. Well, but when it treats it as a disfavored way, as it did in the Sioux Nation, there's certainly no problem. Well, it, no problem except to the extent that the principle that is at issue is the independence of the courts to render final judgments on particular claims that shall never, under any circumstances, be relitigated again. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dreeben. Uh, Mr. Bankert, you have four minutes remaining. Uh, Your Honor, I'll be very brief. Number one, the concept that this statute is not an interference and that the courts can do whatever they want when they get back is belied by the language of the statute itself, which states that upon such a motion, excuse me, upon such a showing, the case shall, shall be reinstated on motion by the plaintiff. There's no discretion left to the court. The Congress has told them what to do. No, but the statute is not self-executing. That is correct, Your Honor, but anybody with a first-year law student's uh, education knows what to do with that statute, sir. Uh, Number two, Hayburn's case is supposedly irrelevant because there are no post-judgment cases around, supposedly no cases where the judgment's effect has been taken away or no executive action. I would ask the Court in your leisure time to look at page 10 of our reply brief where we have cited three cases from this this Court, including the O'Grady decision, which was cited by Chief Justice Rehnquist in in Sioux Nation, as well as two others, Jefferson and Waters, as well as, I might add, Your Honors, many cases from the Circuit Courts of Appeal and the State Supreme Courts on which my learned adversaries turn a Nelsonian eye. There is not a word addressed to a single one of those decisions. Mr. Bank, I wanted to get your position clear on one question. Suppose Congress, instead of doing what it had done in this transition period, had said, this particular claim, this 10b-5 claim, has a life of four years. All claims that were initially brought before X state have a life of four years. If Congress had done that, there would be no preclusion doctrine operating against the plaintiff, would there? In, in essence, Your Honor, even though the claim was finally dismissed before the statute? On, on the then statute of limitations. That's correct. We would cleave to our position, Your Honor, that that would be a violation of the separation of powers. It would merely be an evasion of the doctrine by the Congress simply saying, we know you had a final judgment on a two-year or three-year statute. Now it's four years. You're we- saying that Congress simply cannot prolong a statute of limitations once a judgment has been rendered. That is our position, Your Honor. Mr. Jo- uh, Justice Kennedy, to, to respond to your question as to what is the, uh, I- in the so-called flexibility cases, what w- how far can you go before interfering with the courts too much? Uh, from the Nixon decision, at least, the phrase potential disruption is used. And if this isn't, in other words, if there is a potential disruption when branch A takes something from branch B, then that does not pass muster. Uh, I, I commend to your honor that nothing could be more disruptive than the ability of the other branch to take from you perhaps your most precious attribute, and that is to terminate cases. 
And those cases are entitled to just as much due process protection. The McCullough case lives. It is just as valid as it was when it was decided in 1898, and it's cited every day. Not every day. It is cited constantly by courts. Your Honors, we submit that indeed, Justice Souter, the two doctrines do merge, although I think separation of powers is there, and it actually, in essence, it is the reason we have a due process right as well. Uh, and for that reason, it is our submission that the holding of the Fifth Circuit poses the gravest possible threat to this judicial system and to the persons who rely upon it every day. Therefore, we respectfully urge that the decision of the Fifth Circuit be reversed. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Bankert. The case is submitted.